Okay, if you want a title for this talk, it's Love Wins. Um, and we've been going through uh, the this whole of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've arrived at chapter 13. Um, so we've done 12 of these before, uh, talking about, uh, about all sorts of subjects to this very uh, well-known group of people, not in the culture, it's very similar to our own. So today we've reached 1 Corinthians 13, it's one of the best known chapters in the Bible. It's about love and I could talk on it for hours. But the, f- the first thing that you're going to have to thank little Naomi for is the fact that I presume that Johnny and Louisa have lunch arrangements. <laughs> So I'm not going to talk for hours. But the biggest challenge in uh, speaking about 1 Corinthians 13 is that most congregations uh, are familiar with it and think they, they know it. So in fact, we're uh, probably a little bit over-familiar with it. Can I just take a little straw poll? How many people have had a church wedding here? How many people have had a church wedding? So of those of you who have stuck your hand up, Keep your hand up if you remember having 1 Corinthians 13 as a re- reading at your wedding. So that's, um, that's possibly half, something like that, which I guess is what I, what I expected. There's only one little problem. The little problem is that it's got almost nothing to do with weddings, certainly in its original context. Should we pray? Lord God, I just want to ask that uh, that today none of us, Lord, would miss out on understanding your love. None of us would miss out on your grace. Lord, just, uh, just take your word and use it. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, well, everybody's got an opinion on love, haven't they? Um, I decided when I was kind of doing a little bit of research for, for the talk that is the mandatory thing is you have to Google love, don't you, really? And if you Google love quotes, you'll find a whole host of websites that have got scores, literally scores, of quotes on love. All sorts of quotes. Um, the one thing that they have all got in common is that everyone agrees that there's not enough love in the world. And of course, according to John Lennon, famously, love is all you need. Which sounds like it should be true, and it is in some ways. Um, but for me, actually, that leaves more questions dangling in the air than, than it gives answers. So here are a few questions that we might like to actually have a think about this morning. So what is love anyway? And what isn't it? What's the value of love? Is it just an emotion? Can it evaporate? Is it possible to love people that you don't actually like very much? And if so, how? Now, it would be really easy for us, actually, at this point, to kind of close our Bibles, and we'll have a little fireside chat with Uncle David, but let's, let's not do that. Let's let the Bible teach us, rather than imposing our views on it. 
So looking at just the first section of the passage, um, it is a, um, a really stupid statement on face value to say that it follows on from the last verse of the previous chapter. Well, of course it does. But actually it's important because the last verse of the previous chapter says, and yet I will show you a more excellent way, um, which means far better. Well, far better than what? Was far better than what Paul's been talking about in chapter 12 because he's in chapter 12, he's been trying to inject a little perspective into the Corinthians' chaotic and skewiff view of life. You remember that this group of people lived in a big, important city. They were pretty arrogant, very competitive, horribly pretentious, and so proud of their gifts and their talents. But actually, when it came down to it, they could be quite callous. So Paul writes to educate them, and he starts in 1 Corinthians 13 with a maths lesson. And he suggests three yardsticks that they might have used to measure their spirituality. Now, we'll go through these and just all mention them at least. But they're certainly not alone because at different points in church history, all of these have been wheeled out as possible yardsticks for one's spirituality. Broadly, they are supernatural spiritual giftedness, extreme asceticism, a martyrdom. Going backwards, a martyrdom, more Christians died in the last century, murdered for their faith, than in the previous 19 put together. And it's not getting better. Extreme asceticism, well, not here, not now. Uh, we have a fairly hedonistic sort of culture, don't we? But in the past, in the sort of early centuries of the church, it was quite common. So if you go to the Middle East now, you will sometimes see these little monasteries perched up on the top of this sheer cliff face. Um, you know, and where it's virtually impossible to get to. It's as isolated as you can possibly get. So they cut themselves off from the world. That was their idea of spirituality. So over in this country, in the very early years of the church here... Um, then the early Christian monks, some of them would go out, wade out into the sea, up to their necks into prey in the middle of winter. That was their idea of spirituality. Uh, move over St. Ansel, but I don't think I'm going to be joining you. And their supernatural spiritual giftedness, which is what Paul's been talking about in chapter 12, and <clears throat> we will have covered last week. Well, where's the maths in that? Well, I'd just like you to indulge me. I'm honestly not trying to patronise anybody. Can you play along with me? What's one times a hundred? Thank you. What's naught times a hundred? What's ten times three thousand? What's Zero times trillion. Zero. Correct. You got it. So here, Paul's introducing us to kingdom maths. It goes according to this equation. Value in God's eyes, value in God's eyes equals the product, the times, gifts, 
and love. So value is gifts times love. So Paul's maths are that it doesn't matter how gifted you are, and gifts are valuable, it doesn't matter how self-disciplined you are, or how self-sacrificial we are. If the only beneficiary is me, and no one else gains, or it's not done with a view to help, or to encourage, if the love factor is zero, the value is zero. So, Paul's basically saying, you can be as gifted as you want, but if you're not doing it with a loving heart, forget it. It's not useful. And Paul applies it to himself, to be fair. He's not just having a go at everyone else. So, moving on to the middle section. The middle section really talks about what love is and what love isn't. So we really do have to uh, start by clarifying what we mean by love. And the trouble is that the English word love is a real one-size-fits-all word. You see, I love chocolate. I love this weather. I love my friends. I love my wife. And my wife loves chocolate. But sometimes one language is richer than another and while English isn't that bad and it it can be rich when it comes to love actually unfortunately the language is pretty poverty stricken because what we've got is like love and lust and that's pretty much it and they do have rough Greek counterparts but Greek has a few more as well so there's a word that talks more about the sort of friendship there's a word that talks about family empathy. So for Johnny and Louisa, you know, somebody hurts Naomi, they're going to feel like a spear has gone into them and woe betide the person who does it. There's casual flirting as a word for that, doesn't appear in the Bible. Uh, the word eros actually doesn't appear in the Bible. There's a love which is more duty-based and a love which is basically hubris, it's arrogance, it's loving myself. But all that really is a a warm-up to the main New Testament word for love, which is the word agape, and it's got no real direct English equivalent. The nearest word would be altruism. That's the nearest concept unselfish, unconditional love that puts another person first, where repayment of that is unlikely, is never likely to be mutual, never likely to be mutual. And that is like God's love to us. More of that anon. So what might agape look like in practice? How would you recognise it if you saw it? Well, I'm going to read you a a few of those verses in a different version. It's it's a paraphrase rather than translation. Um, It's from the message, if you want to know. So I happen to like this. It says, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for itself. Love doesn't want what it can't have. Love 
doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't always fly off the handle, doesn't keep score on the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel. It's a nice one, isn't it? Take pleasure, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Just kind of picking one, two of those out. I'm going to throw a few things, toss them out, and see if you think that they might apply. So love cares more for itself than others. Well, that's the agape love that we've been talking about. That's this special, high-quality type of love. Love isn't covetous. It's not jealous. It says love isn't always me first. And then doesn't always disappear when there's work to be done. Doesn't fly off the handle. Are you a light the blue touch paper sort of person? Doesn't keep score on the sins of others. Actually, there's one version that says, uh, says love throws a cloak of silence over the misdeeds of others. It's the opposite of gossip. It doesn't gloat. When enemies have got their noses rubbed in it, which then they richly deserve it. So it takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, or perhaps the flowering of other people, and you're overlooked. Love keeps going, love is persistent. And it goes without saying, and we'd all probably um, agree to this, that love is not always easy. Um, I've said this before, so forgive me if you've heard it before. There's a little ditty that says, To live above with saints we love, my, that will just be glory. To live below with saints we know, that's quite another story. Love for followers of Jesus is an imperative. But how then can we love people that we don't especially like? Well, it is possible, actually. Lots of people will say that their favourite verse is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. Terrific verse. It's not my favourite. My favourite is 1 John 3.18. Instead, which says, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Love is about what we do rather than how we feel. Um, If you've ever done any counselling training or you've done some psychology at college or something like that, you will probably have heard of the influential American psychologist Carl Rogers, who was sort of at his peak sort of in the middle years of the last century. And he defined love as, quote unquote, to perceive the needs of another person and then meet them which I really like. 
In other words, love is practical, and acts of repeated love become a lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle that's required of all followers of Jesus. It is only possible with the Holy Spirit, only possible if God is in you. I've said it's required. For example, Jesus instructed us to do good to those who have actually treated us pretty shabbily. The Apostle John, as an old man, he challenged his readers with the impossibility of loving God while loathing someone else. And if we reckon we can, says John, we're lying to ourselves. So if someone has really annoyed you, and this is where rubber hits road, isn't it? So if somebody's really upset you, here's my advice. Find something that you can do for them or give them. It will change you. And the other thing that you can do is to pray for their welfare and ask God to show you how much he loves them. Um, That became a real to be um, a few years ago, certainly not in this church, so I don't think that. Uh, But I've had a problem with somebody uh, who was being extremely patronising in in my book at least and um, I struggled I really did Um, I struggled for probably for at least a couple of years Um, and in the end the, the only thing that got me out of that was praying for them so pray for their welfare Finally, there's an implied truth in this passage that God is love. If God is love, then he is all the things that is described in this passage. He isn't particularly faith. He isn't described as hope. But he is described as love and All that is said of love in this passage is exemplified by Jesus. He is patient. He is kind. He is forgiving if asked. He is not easily angered. Above all, he sought our good, not his own, when he deliberately chose a truly awful death as the price of our freedom. If you don't know why that was necessary, ask somebody, ask a Christian that you know to explain it. But the substitute of the innocent for the guilty forced back the fingers of death and his grip is now broken. Now you might think, well, does God really love me? Is that possible? Am I really lovable to God? Well the answer is yes you are because whatever your faults, whatever your problems are, his love mercifully is immense. That other people may have written you off. You may even write yourself off. In fact you might even deserve to be written off. But it's not over. I want to conclude by reading you my my favourite poem. It's called The Old Violin. 
It goes like this. To us battered and scarred and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A pound? A pound. Then two? Only two? Two pounds and who'll make it three? Three pounds once, three pounds twice. Going for three, but no, from the room far back, a grey-haired man came forward and he picked up the bow. And wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand pounds and who'll make it two? Two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We do not understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of a master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. And the moral is that what God loves, we must not despise. His love always wins. God loves you.